No, it's I just can't. good genetics. What yeah. can I say? Yeah. I never really thought about it at the time. I mean, we were pretty young, but looking back on it, I guess it makes sense that he'd end up coaching. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast, and another interview show presented by GMC and the new Sierra AT4X. That comment off the top is from hockey trainer and coach Ryan Tracy. He was Jay Woodcroft's line mate with the Aurora Eagles, a junior team based north of Toronto. Spot quiz, who was their center? Ken Forshee. Yeah, we, we go deep on this podcast. any rate, Tracy's observation is pretty consistent with what a lot of people in Woodcroft's hockey orbit say about him. Even if you didn't realize it at the time, when you look back, it's pretty obvious Jay Woodcroft has been rehearsing and studying for his current role as Edmonton Oilers head coach for pretty much his entire life. Now, that includes when he was a forward with the Markham Waxers, the University of Alabama Huntsville Chargers, the Anchorage Aces, the Corpus Christi Rays, and the Missouri River Otters, where he was teammates with Colin Chalk, currently the head coach of the... Edmonton Oilers AHL affiliate, the Bakersfield Condors. I told you we go deep on this podcast. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about all-in people. You know, the ones that marry passion with work ethic and how amazing it really is when those two things intersect. That's Jay Woodcroft. And the bio is impressive. Video coach with the Mike Babcock-led Detroit Red Wings. Can you imagine cutting up clips of Pavel Datsuk, Henrik Zetterberg, and Nick Lidstrom? What a dream. Assistant coach of the San Jose Sharks under Todd McClellan, drinking in the greatness of Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe and Joe Pavelski, now drives a couple of Ferraris and Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl as head coach for the powerhouse Edmonton Oilers. Ellie and I sat down with Woodcroft at Scotiabank Arena last Friday after the Oilers' remarkable third-period comeback win against the Boston Bruins. Now, before we get to the interview, we'd like to thank Jamie Cartmel, Director of Hockey Communications for the Edmonton Oilers, and Krista Benson, Events Coordinator for MLSE, for making this interview possible. This is pretty wide-ranging. As I mentioned earlier, we go deep. It's a fascinating look inside the mind of one of the brightest young coaches the NHL has to offer from the legendary coaching Woodcroft family, Here's Jay Woodcroft on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. So, Jay, first of all, thanks so much for doing this. Second of all, we're doing this interview the day after your Edmonton Oilers did something that nobody does in the NHL. Comes from behind and beats the Boston Bruins. A third period come from behind victory. We're going to get into the specifics of you and the Oilers and everything, but how did you do it? It's our players for sure. I thought, I thought we started the game very well, executed the game plan that we wanted executed, and uh, they came down. And they got one on us. But what I really enjoyed was our stick-to-itiveness, our level of persistence. We just stuck with our game plan. Something else happened at the end of the first period where we gave up a goal under a second left, uh, something atypical for us. And um, walked in the room after that first period, and it was just about understanding the challenge before us. We felt if we could cut that game in half, meaning if we could find that next goal, that we'd be in a good spot. 
Uh, sure enough, we did that in the second period and then we stuck to it. We made an adjustment here and an adjustment there, but in all truthfulness, that's what we expect to do. Boston Bruins are not TD Bank Garden or whatever it's called there in Boston or not. Uh, for us, it's about, um, you know, a standard that we play towards. And when we do, we think we're a, a tough team to beat. And last night we were. Your group, they went to the Stanley Cup semifinals last year, the Western Conference final. Yep. And I don't want to say that this looks like a joyless season because I don't believe that's true. But when I watch the Oilers play, Jay, I see a team that is not interested in anything else aside from getting past where they were last year. Like you watch McDavid, the night he scores 50th goal. He doesn't want to talk about scoring 50. Hitting 50 goals is a big deal for, for any player. I mean, the situation isn't great, but that's that's a pretty major milestone. Uh, yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice number. <laughs> what did Leon? What did he say to you when he came over after your fiftieth? Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> I kind of look at your group and I, I say it's all business, all business. You know, internally we have some fun with each other. You know, it might not be uh, something that we advertise or whatnot, um, but I would say uh, for us the joy is in the journey, and for me. You know, we want to do better than we did last year, but the first hurdle you have to get to is you got to make the playoffs. And the 82-game grind of an NHL schedule, not everything is going to go perfectly. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to capture moments that happen within the season that help us uh, with our ultimate goal. But we still got to move along uh, the regular season. And for us, it hasn't been an easy season. Uh, there's been some times where we've played short just because of salary cap yep. implications. Uh, we've lost uh, some you know, people up front early in the year that really affected some of the things that we were trying to do. What do I mean by that? You know, a lot of times we went to 11 forwards and seven defensemen. We were doing what we had to do in order to gain points and stay afloat in kind of the divisional race. We've taken a real step, I believe, since Christmas time. And uh, there has been a lot of positive stories within our year. But in the end, what we're trying to do is prepare ourselves for game number 83. And uh, that is our focus. But we got to get to number 83 before you uh, you can worry about uh, winning that first game in the playoffs or winning the first round in the playoffs. You got to make sure you're capturing certain moments within the year that are going to prepare you for a long playoff run. You know, Elliot talked about, you know, the team and looking determined and focused. We see all of that on Connor McDavid. I know you referenced the 50 goals and I don't want to talk about that. And yeah. like, it's kind of for everybody else. We've said it before on the podcast, like it's frightening. Like he's at that next level. Just when you think like, okay, he's out of gears, there's another one. And we've all watched a lot of Connor. Like here yeah. in Toronto where we're doing this, a lot of people watched him play with the Marlies before that on York Simcoe or played with the Erie Otters all the way through. This is the most intense and focused we've ever seen Connor McDavid. Yeah. What does the coach think? Uh, I'm impressed. You know, something I would say on just the on-ice side of things. We can't be numb to what we're witnessing here. Mm -hmm. This is a, an historic season in this type of hockey that's being played by this generation. For me, 
usually when we come into a different city, all the local media want to talk about is Connor. Yep. And, you know, something I said earlier in the year, and I wish I could attribute to where I heard it, but I heard somebody talking about someone at the top of their game or the top of their field. And the way they equated it was, you know, it's like being at the foot of Everest. Sometimes you become numb to the brilliance of what you're seeing. And what do I mean by that is, you know, you get out the door, you look up and there's this beautiful mountain. Well, you do that for a number of years. Sometimes you take it for granted. I don't think we should be taking for granted what we're seeing from not only the best hockey player in the world, but one of the best athletes in the world right now. That's on the hockey side of things. His season is truly spectacular. On the leadership, you know, his growth as a captain, uh, what I'm privy to on a day-to-day basis is seeing somebody truly sacrifice to be the best uh, at his craft. And I've seen him take a step um, in the leadership side. And what do I mean by that? It's a, it's not just setting the example anymore for him. It's holding people to a certain standard. You know, I'm fortunate that I, I get to coach the best player in the world. Can you give us an example? Have you, have you seen it different this year? Um, I think if there's something that happens uh, in the play where maybe in the past uh, we would talk about it the next day or in between periods, he's not afraid to nip things in the bud, uh, whether that be with a teammate, whether that be with something he feels on a special team, anything like that. He is unafraid to voice his opinion. And I think that's part of uh, intellectually, emotionally maturing, but I think he's really maturing in into the role of captain. I think that playoff run last year wet his appetite and he realizes that in order for our team to take the next step, a lot of it comes down to how he plays and what he values as a player, but the leadership side of things, it's beyond impressive. You know, one of the things, this is so fascinating to me because one of the things, and I think what you're getting at here, Elliot and I have talked about this before around great athletes specifically. One of the hardest things to do is have the talent to manage your talent. Like there's being talented and then there's being able to manage that talent. Is that what you're getting at with McDavid? We've seen players, oh, you know, I'm going through a slump, just going to, you know, bear down and work hard, work hard. I can work and polish and polish and polish, you know, pound the sword, pound the sword, pound the sword. But being able to manage your life, your skill, your profession, your craft, like that's its own talent. Yeah. And you're seeing that in McDavid, if I'm reading you correctly. Yeah, I see that for sure. He's somebody who wakes up in the morning, he's driven to be the best that he can be. His The choices he makes, the sacrifices he makes in order to be the best that he can be, it's beyond impressive. What I'm seeing now as the leader of our team, though, is that he is holding people to a certain standard to where the standard is our standard. And if we're not living up to it, he's not afraid to make sure that people hear his displeasure. And that's not someone going after anybody or anything like that. It's with the end goal in mind of us being the best that we can be, us playing towards our potential. He's not afraid to come to the coaching staff if he feels something. To me, I love seeing that as a coach. And uh, as I said, it's beyond impressive. What does coach Jay Woodcroft give Connor McDavid bleep for? Uh, what do I give him bleep for? Uh, not much. Uh, he does a lot. He does a lot well. You know, there are times, um, you know, when I talk about managing rest uh, with him in that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, it might be best if he's played 24 minutes the night before, it might be best uh, for maybe him to sit one out. But he's such a good leader that I think 
when he chooses to skate in certain situations, it comes down to him showing the team that he's willing to do that for the team. But I don't give him bleep about too much. Because <laughs> I remember Bruce Boudreau telling a story about the first time when he got hired in Washington, the yeah. first time he had to make Alexander Ovechkin the star of that day's film mm-hmm. session. Yeah. And he said he went to Ovechkin first and he said, you're getting it today. Yeah. Have you ever done that with yes. McDavid? Yeah. And I would say this, that happens quite often. And that is the job of the coach is to provide leadership, you know, in that regard and make sure everybody's held accountable. I think Connor enjoys that. I think we have to give our best players things that they can sink their teeth into that can help them be the best that they can be. That's been my experience. I've been around a lot of really good players over time. And it's been my experience that the best players in the world want to be led. And that's what I'm here to do. Are are Connor and Leon different at all in the way that they have to be coached or managed? Yes. How? I think uh, Leon, first of all, is the son of a coach. And he's somebody who's been kind of in that world for a, a longer time. He comes early to the rink. He has certain patterns that he follows. I think uh, what's similar about both of them is they have elite hockey sense, like elite off the charts hockey sense. They understand the patterns in the game. They understand um, the way the game is being played, what teams are having the most success, why they're having it. Uh, They both crave information that's going to help them be the best that they can be, but they're different personality types. Um, They're different presences. Um, You know, I think uh, in the end, uh, they're both great friends, though, because they are different. They're not the same. Let's swing to, to Drysaw. Do you want to come back on yep, McDavid sure. a couple of seconds? But here you on the spot because you've been around both. Yep. Who scores better from the red line, Leon Drysaitel or Joe Thornton? <laughs> from the red line, you're, from the goal line. Oh, you're talking about the when they yeah, yeah when they fall off there. Um, for a second there, I thought you were talking about center ice no. too. <laughs> yeah, I was like center ice. You know what I think? I would say that's such a unique spot to score goals from, but it's also sometimes the best players in the world find ice that others don't. Uh, so it's in response to maybe how they're being defended in certain situations. I would say um, Jumbo was, and they're both elite passers, uh, but Leon probably scores from that spot a little easier than Jumbo would have. Over the line, five on five. Dreisaitl, one-timer score from an impossible angle. An unbelievable goal. He's got two. 21 on the year, and the Oilers back in front. But I think it's just one of those shots that a goaltender doesn't expect it to come that quickly off an angle that Dreisaitl was at. What a shot. But he meant to do this. We've seen him score so many goals from a similar spot. He gets down to that corner. He is below the goal line when he rips this puck on net. For McDavid, no look. Bang, it's down to him. Look where he is standing. He is literally in the corner when he lets that go. And he beats Hogberg, and he just looks after and says, are you kidding me? We were all amazed at Leon last year in the playoffs. Yeah. One of the greatest playoff performances I think we've all seen. And, yeah. you know, you're, you're agreeing with that. That's... That's obvious. We watch it from you know a fan's point of view, with a fan's eyes. You coach Leon Dreisaitl. You know hockey. You played. You've coached. Yep. What impresses you? Let's go back to that playoff series. The pain tolerance that he played with, and not just played, but he played at such a high level. Yeah. I mean, both him and Connor shredded uh, three different teams offensively. You know, the numbers that they put up were unbelievable, mm-hmm. and for Leon to have done that on one leg is amazing. I thought what we learned about Leon was that 
he found a new way under a special circumstance, meaning, you know, given his injury, there were certain things he could do on the ice. There were certain things he couldn't do on the ice. We changed his position in large part because of that. Yet dealing with the pain and finding a new way, he still found a way to have an effect and help drive our team forward. I go back, you know, to this year, the hockey sense, you know, the goal that uh, he scored the other day when he put the goal back on its peg mm-hmm. against Winnipeg. Boy, did he ever pick that top part of the net? Watch this, though. On the ensuing play, the toe drag. And Morrissey doesn't like it. It looked like Dreisaitl was almost going down himself. But in the process, he puts the net back. He has the wherewithal to say, hey, we've got possession here. We're going to move it around. He doesn't do that. He doesn't score this goal. They probably blow it down. But he puts it back on the moorings, and look at this, not a whole lot of room. But he recognizes that David Riddick is down. He's already down a long time before he takes this shot, and he goes headhunting. Put it right for the head, nothing you can do on that shot. Not a, a whole lot of room, Louis. Just a beauty. There was no room. I mean, he's just aiming for head, looking for anything, and he puts it right in there. What an accurate release. And then found a hole about this big, you know, from almost an impossible angle. Mm-hmm. That goal doesn't happen unless he has the hockey sense and the wherewithal to understand that that peg had to be put back on, on the mooring or whatever. <laughs> Let me. Uh, that's brilliant. Let me go back to the playoffs. How close were you, if ever, to saying, Leon, I can't let you go back out there? I'll tell you a funny story about that, and it's I don't know how funny it is, but it. What happened is uh, we were playing for our our playoff lives in game six versus uh, Los Angeles. And there was a scrum. He gets pulled down from behind. Uh, Hertz is, uh, you know, a lower body injury, has a lower body injury. Comes it's back his ankle, the- <laughs> Jay. Okay. It's over. A year later, can we can say, say what it is. You're, you're allowed right. to now, even though it hasn't right. been a press release, but you can, you right. can say it. Okay, right. so, yeah, but he hurts his ankle. <laughs> uh, he comes back to the bench, and, you know, I, I know something's going on. And the play had run on. There was kind of a TV timeout at the very end of the period. Trainer comes up to me and they both say, well, we're going to bring him back and evaluate him. I said, well, just leave it. Just leave it. Don't show the cameras that that he's leaving the bench for this reason or whatnot. And he looked up at me and said, if I do it, I'll be back in the second period. I said, okay, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so he did it and he, and he played the rest of that game. But man, I mean, the pain threshold to be able to do what he did was amazing. I think what we tried to do from that point was manage what we were asking him to do between games or between series. But what he did was unbelievable. And uh, you talk about um, the effect that that has throughout the organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're Ryan McLeod and you're seeing Leon Dreisaitl play with that type of pain, you know, I think that that goes a lot farther than, than me saying anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's witnessing it, you know, and Leon's not the only guy that plays with pain. Vander Kane has, has yeah, done an unbelievable job uh, with managing some things and, um, you know, coming back so early from a horrific injury. I would also say the, the one thing about McDavid nobody talks about is how hard of a player he is, the abuse that he takes and the, and how physical he is with his body. It's amazing what these guys go through. And, you know, we're thankful that we have players of that caliber and that character on our team. I want to talk about you. Sure. February 10th, last year, 2022. Take us through that day. 
So, you know, he's, he's been down there for four years. Again, I think he's detailed energy, passion. He's been, been on the bench in the National Hockey League as an assistant coach. He's been in the room in all those meetings for since 2005. He's now ran his own bench for four years. And I think he's had a lot of success and done, done I, I watch Bakersfield a lot on the computer and get there occasionally live, but uh, I watched lots of their games and he does a, um, I like the way the team plays down there. They're, they're, they're very detailed and um, that's what I expected he was going to bring up here. When did you get the call? Who'd you call first? What was your reaction? Yeah, I got the call very early in the morning. Typically, I'm an early riser, so I go into work very early. Um, our staff was there. I get the call. So it's you're a, in your office in, in Bakersfield? In the office, yeah. Did you have any idea it was coming? No. Um, it's not something I thought about. I was worried about my own team. Uh, our team at that point in Bakersfield was going through a COVID crisis. Uh, we had games where it was just me on the bench or me and a goalie coach on the bench. Uh, we're losing people on a day by day basis to, to COVID. It was hitting us at that time, but we were finding ways to win games. And, uh, you know, that's the call that, um, makes everything worthwhile. All the sacrifice, your family's sacrifice, all the years you spent at an arena. It was, everything that you ever want. But I also knew a few things. Uh, I knew that uh, the challenge ahead was going to be a big one, but I felt ready. And I can't stress that enough. Uh, you know, from uh, my life experience growing up in the family that I have, from my work experience starting uh, in Detroit, going through San Jose, working in Edmonton the first time, and working uh, with and for some really, really great hockey minds, and then making the choice to go to Bakersfield and become a head coach on my own and work with our own staff down there. All of that left me with the feeling of being ready when I got tapped on the shoulder. That day, it happened very early in the morning. I called my wife and said, this is happening. I said, maybe keep the kids home from school. My wife was substitute teaching at their school. She said, no, I'm teaching today. I can't do that. And, <laughs> and what's her name? Uh, my wife's name is Jackie, who ironically is from Edmonton. Yeah. And so I said goodbye over the phone. I went home. I packed up my stuff. I had to get tested to be able to get on an airplane. Um, I called some people that were special to me to let them know so they heard it from me before the news broke. Both Dave Manson and I came up together. That was important to me because Dave has been what I call my left tackle mm -hmm. uh, since I was a head coach down in Bakersfield. And uh, we came up together. I really did not have a moment to myself to think about the challenge and what I was going to say to our team and to the media until the gate closed you know, on the airplane because I knew I had three hours then from LA to Edmonton. Land in Edmonton, take a car to our, our hotel there. I had a meeting that night, it was late at night. I wanted to hear from the, um, the people that were still on the coaching staff about their thoughts of where the team was at, what they were seeing. I wanted to take the temperature of a few things. Uh, once I slept on it, got up in the morning, addressed the team uh, before a quick practice, address the media uh, and in that moment I've really felt I was addressing our fan base to try and outlay a plan that we could follow and that would uh, help us have a little bit of success we went and played a game against the New York Islanders we found a way to win that game and and the rest is history listen to the 32 thoughts podcast ad free on Amazon music included with Prime
You know, I talked to um, a couple of people over the past couple of days. Um, you either, you know, mostly players that you played with growing up, whether it's, you know, Markham, Aurora, various minor pro teams. And one of the questions I asked was, did you ever think that Jay would be a coach? And they all said, at the time, no. But as I look back, <laughs> yes, that you were the all-in, 24-7, in the hockey pool, collecting the hockey cards, yep. watching the hockey games, studying other teams. Like, you were that guy. And pretty much every person said, it should have been obvious to me <laughs> that this guy was going to be a coach one day. Yep. When did it first get into your brain that maybe I'm going to coach one day? Well, that's a huge compliment from whoever you were speaking to. There's um, a couple. And, you know, uh, is for, it because part of they're basically saying we didn't think he was smart enough back yeah, then, exactly, but we probably yeah. should have realized it. Yeah. Or maybe their 10 year old brain didn't think that. Um, but for me, um, I'm the youngest of three boys. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's involved in hockey. I was someone who considered himself a student of the game. I enjoyed going to watch my brothers play and watch them practice and uh, figure some things out along the way. Mm -hmm. I think, when did I know that I would become a coach? I was a product of the Toronto hockey school system. I remember uh, taking power skating lessons at Larry Mars and still friends really? with, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah uh, I, Ledge, that's a legend. legend. Oh. Yeah, he's a legend. Wow. And his uh, top instructor was someone named Spence Curtin, who's involved in minor hockey still to this day here in Toronto. And they, they were people I learned from and, and looked up to, you know, when I was um, really going to hockey school, Seneca College Hockey School, uh, you know, in Toronto here mm -hmm. at Seneca College was, I went uh, there. yeah, was run by Vern Buffy. Yep. And they had a great way of bringing in the best young players in Toronto they would uh, allow them to work as instructors and pass their passion for the game on to the next generation of player. And I kind of went to those schools and I looked up to guys like Adam Graves and, and Steve Spott. And eventually Steve Spott took uh, that program over at Seneca College. And, and when I was 13 or 14, I started to work there. Mm. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons working there in the summertime. One of them was how to behave around older players, understanding hockey culture in terms of like the work ethic and paying things forward by passing your passion on to the, the younger players. I still have bruises from all the skates I tied that first summer. But as I got a little bit older and a little bit older, I was entrusted with leading groups. And now all of a sudden you got to figure out, okay, how am I going to best use our time on the ice to give these kids something to truly make them better? And, um, you know, even as a player, as I was working my way up, you know, my own career, I still really enjoyed those summer times because, um, you know, you're trying to solve problems and, and come up with solutions for things. And I would say that's where the seeds of coaching started. So what was your big break? Big break, um, born into the Woodcroft family, number one, mm -hmm. uh, won the lottery, two great parents, uh, two great brothers. I've won the lottery with my own family now, with my wife, Jackie, and our two kids. Mm -hmm. Professionally speaking, when I was, you know, I had done some things professionally where I'd earned a college education. So I got something back for all those hours of hard work. You know, I played in the minors. I was playing in Europe and it was during the, um, 
lockout of 2004 Mm -hmm. and Mike Babcock had lost somebody on his coaching staff and wanted to know if I wanted to talk to him about potentially uh, joining his coaching staff. And at that time it was in Anaheim Mm -hmm. and uh, Greg Carvel had moved on to Ottawa and now is a great coach in his own right. Um, But Mike, uh, I had a long conversation that lockout ended up lasting the full year. Mike went to the Detroit Red Wings, we kept in touch. You know, I had to make a decision at 28 years old if I wanted to still play in the leagues in Europe, which is a great lifestyle, and I really enjoyed it. But in the end, I wanted to make a decision to be around the best in the world. And the Detroit Red Wings at the time had a great team, got to learn from a a great coaching staff there. Every member of that coaching staff has gone on to be a head coach in the NHL. I'm quite proud of being in that room. Mm-hmm. And as the lowest man on the totem pole, I made sure that my ears were open and my mouth was was closed as much as possible. And I learned a lot. <laughs> what was the biggest lesson you learned? Just the amount of hard work and preparation that goes into uh, doing things the right way. Everybody there was a star in their own right. It was an education in how to do it right on a daily basis. I would joke that my undergrad was at at Red Wings University. What's the perfect length for a video session? Uh, Not too long. You know, I I think we have to understand the world we live in now. So I believe that one of the best qualities for young coaches out there is to learn how to distill things down to what is most important, what is most essential. Uh, I think there's ways to get to people on the little uh, details of things. A lot of that will happen one-on-one. But in terms of a video session for the team, you know, I try and keep it under two or three minutes max. Hmm. That's fast. Yeah, I try. Sometimes it's a little bit longer. (laughs) If we've lost a few in a row, it might be a little bit longer. But I still believe that the brain can only hold attention for so long. And that's learned through experience. Does that build throughout the season? I remember talking to, to one video coach who was talking about the idea of, you know, initially just focus on one thing and then build from there all throughout the season. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I would say for us... um, you know, it's like adding a layer to the onion, so to speak. You know, where we are right now is quite different from where we were in September. In September, you're laying the foundation. And as you work your way through the season, that's why I said it's important to capture moments that occur uh, during the season. We had a great meeting the other day in Boston, a review of our Buffalo game in certain areas. And then I saw growth in our team last night in those areas, that makes me feel very good as a, as a coach. You know, sometimes when you're playing the best team in the league, that brings out those moments. And uh, so today I wanted to make sure that not only did we focus on that the other day, but we caught them doing some things properly too. What was that? What was that thing? Oh, you want me to spill yeah, all the I secrets here? I want to know. What uh, you know what? Just some defensive things. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, everybody understands for us that we feel we're going to score enough goals But the better we are defensively in certain parts of our game defensively, the better chance for long-term success we have. I think the other day in the media, we played Buffalo and I said, came out and I said, you know, since Christmas time, we beat Buffalo three to two. Since Christmas time, we have 17 wins, three overtime or shootout losses and two losses in regulation when we give up three goals or less. So that, to me, is our template. Last night, we played Boston. We won 3-2. That kind of it reaffirms what we're trying to talk about here. And I believe that the better we are in those areas, the more chance for success we'll have. One of the great things about 3-on-3 when it started 
it seemed like coaches didn't know what to do with this thing and just go, yeah. just go and play. And it's up and down and up and sprint, 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 sprint. And then like everything else, the coaches got the hooks in. Yeah. How do you coach three on three? What do you want to see out there? What don't you want to see out there? What makes you cringe? What makes you smile? I mean, Listen, the Oilers on three on three. It's yeah, seriously it's, put it's out ninety seven and twenty nine. That would make me smile. Yeah. Automatic, right? Yeah. How do you coach that with this team? Well, last year I came up and we had a lot of success in that regard. Very impressive to watch the highest skilled players in the league when they have all that ice, right? Uh, this year, I think we won our first two games in overtime, but recently we've, we've run into a stretch where, um, you know, we couldn't find the wins. We had chances. We just, we didn't find the wins. The first faceoff's important. I think it's important that if a team puts two forwards out there and you have possession of the puck to maybe try and find the forward to pick on the forward defensively. You know, I think what you're seeing as a tactic for some teams that we were just talking about it. Uh, here this morning, some teams will hang on to the puck to try and tire out your best players so that you get a change and then pick on the change and, and find their way. In the end, I agree with you. I think that anytime you leave a portion of the game to the devices of the best coaches in the world, they find ways. And uh, for us, it's our challenge. We can be better in that area in Edmonton. Even though we have some of the best players in the world, we can be better. When you took over last year, there were noticeable changes in the way you defended the neutral zone on the blue line. What did you think that the Oilers needed to do? When I sat on that plane going from L.A. to Edmonton and I had some film to sink my teeth into, uh, that was just an area that I thought the team was giving up maybe a little too much. And that's um, that was just the one thing. And that was a big thing for us was that I tried not to convolute anything by going in eight different areas areas. I got some great advice from Paul Maurice, somebody that I really respect as a coach. And, and he, uh, he suggested to me that you pick one or two things at most and then kind of go from there. So that was the area that upon doing my work and the answers becoming clear, we wanted to put a greater emphasis on gap control from our D-men, uh, greater emphasis on uh, our work back to our own zone from our forwards. We didn't want to just sink in and give up give up lines. We wanted to make sure that lines were contested and that if teams were going to uh, get to our end, they had to earn that right, not just freely get there. Was it a difficult sell at all? No. You know, I tried to find, again, I, I didn't just go to the negative. I tried to find examples of the team doing things well, try to put a few rules in place to give our players a compass. I think it's important that the players have a sense of direction on why you're doing some certain things. We had immediate buy-in. We had success with that first win. And then it just kind of grew from there. It almost became a virtuous loop where, um, you know, they were performing at such a high level and then, uh, you know, it kind of fed into itself. And, and that became one of our calling cards and part of our identity as a team and organization. So what are Woodcross rules for hockey? Oh, whatever. No, no, no. I thought you were just talking about the back check. No, but like, I, like, the, but like for that, okay, that's a good example. Like what are Woodcross rules? Well, I think we want to be known as a work ethic based group, right? Mm-hmm. And controlling the middle of the rink, both offensively and defensively, I believe is very important. It's about uh, letting the 
other team know the ice that is going to be contested heavily. I think there's a measure of physicality to our team. And it's not just always in the big hits. It's uh, getting pieces of people and chipping bodies and and that type of thing. Um, So I'm not going to go into every rule because I'm not going to outlay it here. But (laughs) I would say that uh, our our players are very clear on responsibilities. And that's important to me. I I think if our players feel prepared, if they understand the type of team we're playing and what's coming at them and they're armed with the tools to be successful, they can just go out and play because we're predictable to each other. You mentioned Paul Maurice a second ago. I want to ask you a question that I asked Paul Maurice just like 10 years ago. I remember asking him, what was your welcome to the NHL moment? The one moment you realized, whoa, it's different up here. Like I'm, I'm coaching NHLers. And he said his first practice, and he blew the whistle, he said Sammy Kapanen took off like faster than he'd ever seen anyone take a first three steps before. And he said, wow, that's the NHL. Did you have a welcome to the NHL moment? I did, but not maybe in the way you're asking the question because I had been with Detroit and San Jose and Edmonton, so I'd been in the NHL for over a 1,000 games. I'd coached a lot of the players On the Oilers, when I had come up, I had coached them either in Bakersfield or as an assistant coach in the NHL. So it's interesting because most coaches start the way Paul was. He came up from junior hockey and or college. Some guys come up from college hockey and their first experience in the NHL, everything's new. For me, it was almost the opposite. I started in the NHL, took a step back to work on my head coaching game, and then came up and I felt very comfortable. It felt very natural to me. My original welcome to the NHL moment would have been that training camp in Detroit when you had Iserman, Robert Lang, Brendan Shanahan, Pavel Datsuk in his prime, Henrik Zetterberg, from these guys. And I remember watching the first practice and just coming and saying, I thought I worked hard as a player. <laughs> what these guys do and, and their level of skill and execution was amazing. And I saw the difference. Like what was the first time you ever had to, I don't know, did Babcock ever say, okay, Jay, I want you to tell this player that this isn't going well and you're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I remember one time uh, he had had me do something uh, where I I went to the the front of the room. We were in Los Angeles. It was early and I was just 28 years old. A lot of the players on the team were older than me. And I just said something. We were putting on some type of video for the group. It wasn't leading a meeting or anything. It was more just, uh, you know, telling the group what was going to be shown and everything like that. And uh, when I walked in and I started to speak, it was like the music stopped and everyone kind of turned their head and wanted to know what this young whippersnapper uh, was talking about. You know what I learned and I learned this in Detroit and this is probably where that philosophy came from, but the best players in the world, they didn't mind that I was only 28. They as long un- as you knew what you were talking yes, about. Yes. They wanted to know that you were uh, well-prepared. You had something to offer them. And I think that's a mark of a great player too, is that they want to be coached. Craziest interaction you've ever had with a player as a coach? Um, craziest interaction. Um, I don't know, but I can tell you that as a, as a young guy in Detroit, it was pretty intimidating to be around uh, Steve. And I was telling a story the other day to our coaching staff where, you know, just the leadership that I got to see every day from him. And he's not the loudest or anything like that, but some of the things that I was privy to that first year in Detroit uh, from a legend in our game. Come on, give one up, give one up. 
Oh, I just remember one time in Edmonton during a playoff series, and we didn't win the playoff series, but I saw, uh, you know, the coaches were prepared to come in to give the pregame talk, and Steve stood up and was already giving the talk. And I just thought, man, like that was leadership personified in that moment and what he said. Uh, and in the end, the coaches didn't need to give the talk after Steve gave it. And uh, as a young man, that left a big impression on me. I just wanted to ask you about, you mentioned your brothers. Yep. Todd's a coach. Yep. Craig's a coach. Yep. Do you now say, I'm the best Woodcroft coach? No, I don't say that <laughs> because I'm the youngest. I mean, I'm, I'm used, most youngest are uh, used to being put in their place. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I was uh, the goalie in road hockey and uh, I took a lot of beatings on the way up, but um, I wouldn't trade my, my experience being the youngest in our family with anything. The one uh, fun thing for us as a group of brothers was um, at the 2015 World Championships, Todd was an assistant coach with Glenn Hanlon in Switzerland. Craig was an assistant coach with Dave Lewis in Belarus. And I was an assistant coach with Todd McClellan and a great staff uh, for Team Canada. In the end, Team Canada played both Switzerland and Belarus and, and we ended up beating those, those teams and we won the gold medal. So, uh, but that was the only bragging rights that I have as a coach. Did you have money on the board for those <laughs> No games? money on the board, but I was excited when we won. <laughs> As you evolve as a coach, because you're a great talker, I'm curious how your style sort of changes. Like you mentioned, those first few interactions with Detroit, you're a much different and confident person now. Where do you look to or who do you look towards in hockey, outside of hockey, to develop your own style of communication? Because that always is an evolving thing. Like like all of us, Elliot and I both broke in 94, 95-ish. Maybe you were a little bit before. But like your style evolves, right? Miles Davis used to always say, it takes a long time to sound like yourself. How do you get there? How did Jay Woodcroft get there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the rock in our family was our mom, Jem. Uh, she's passed on here over um, a few years ago, but um, always there was an emphasis put on education. As I moved on and, and worked at hockey schools, you, you find your voice that way when um, you have to stand in front of people and and get your point across. I think as I entered the professional coaching world, certainly Mike is one of the best communicators out there, a great public speaker, walked into a room and and could command any type of room that he walked into. I thought Todd McClellan's uh, public speaking and his ability to get his uh, message across is unbelievable. So you'll learn that. I had a conversation one time, and I'm a big believer in having conversations with learned people in all professions. I had a conversation one time, I called Doug Risebrow up and I, we were just talking about the game. He ended up asking me more questions than I asked him. And in the end, he said something unique to me, which was because he had asked me about who my influences were and all that kind of stuff. And, and then he said, just make sure you remember how important your players are. And I thought it was one of the, and I just hadn't got to that point. And he said, what you can learn from your players, and I was very young at this time, is immeasurable. And I think of some of the best players that I've got to be around in three proud organizations. And what I've learned from them, how they conduct themselves on a daily basis, what their needs were, and seeing them in the 
most pressure filled moments that you can see them. I think that's where you kind of gain experience and, and find your voice. You know, there was, this is a few years ago, Elliot was interviewing Mike Pinball Clemens. He asked a horrible question, but Pinball Clemens gave a great answer. <laughs> and this was the answer, something to the effect of, if you're the smartest person in any room, that's your fault. And that one always stuck with me. That one, like, it seems like you're sort of that guy as well. Like the sponge around all of it. Don't surround yourself with people that'll just bobblehead everything you say. Be in a room where you can learn. You talked about two ears, one mouth before. That's you, right? Well, I think it's, there's something to be said about having an endlessly curious mind uh, and willing to ask questions of people um, in any aspect of life. I think you can learn or pick things up from people. Uh, sometimes it's how not to do things. But for me, uh, in the summertime, when I get away, you know, one of the things I challenge myself with is, is having those types of conversations with people in, in all fields. And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that people pick up the phone and I'm fortunate to be, uh, surrounded by a great family and a great group of friends. And, um, you know, I, like I said, uh, I take notes, I try and evolve as a person, as a coach that way. Last one for me, uh, Jay, is um, uh, and someone from the team told me this, and uh, they wouldn't tell me who it involved, but they told me the story. They said that that you have a really good relationship with your GM in the sense that your GM will listen to you when it comes to what he might be thinking. And he told me that there was a situation where there was a player the others were looking at, and you said to him, I think we can solve this problem from within. And you guys didn't acquire that player. He wouldn't yeah. tell me who it was, yeah. but he told me that the, and you, the fact you're nodding tells me it's yeah. true. Yeah. So tell me about the relationship between you and Ken Holland and the fact that here you are, you're, I guess, 13 months into your NHL career and your GM would listen to you about that. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, what a lucky guy I am as a first time NHL head coach to have uh, as my superior, somebody who has the the experience and pedigree of someone like Ken Holland. Uh, now, you couple that with the fact that we've worked together before. Mm -hmm. We've won a championship together before. I think that's what where the bonds of trust are, are kind of built. I went a separate way in leaving Detroit to go to San Jose and pursuing my own dreams to become a, a head coach. And we've come back together in Edmonton, for him to ask me that question, I feel very uh, capable of answering some things that he might ask. I also am under the understanding that for me, my job is to coach the players that are in front of me. I stay in my lane. If I get asked a question, hopefully I give a learned answer. But the side benefit of having been in Bakersfield and then to come up to Edmonton is that I have a clear understanding of what we have in our organization. And, um, you know, I'm unafraid to play some of these young kids and put them in situations because I, I've seen them perform in certain ways at a different level. Last one for me. Um, I know you're a podcast guy. Yeah. I knew what? the Dan Carlin question. Well, was no, fun. I'm not. Don't, don't bias the jury here. <laughs> what is the second best podcast going? Ah, uh, second best podcast. You know, I've, I've listened to a few here uh, over time. I enjoy doing it. If I get up early in the morning in the summertime and, and go for a run or go for long walks at our cottage, I like to listen to podcasts. So I enjoy learning about people. So one of the ones that I've, 
listen to what is called presidential. And it basically goes through every president of the United States and it tells some type of story about their leadership or what they were dealing with at, at the, the time. And I've picked up a lot of good information like that. You know, I thought that was interesting. I think a pop culture one that I'm into now is Smartless where, that's you know, yeah, that's, the three actors yeah, are sitting there talking great. and they have great guests, but uh, I think I know where your next one was. What, what do I, Dan my Carlin. favorite one? Yeah. So I know you're a big Dan. How yeah. did you, how did you, I was, cause uh, I've had Andrew Ferentz talk to me about Dan Carlin. He's a big fan too. How did you come to find Dan Carlin podcast? Um, I think it was referred to me by uh, one of my brother-in-laws and they knew that I like history and, yeah. and I, you know, I, I listened to the one on world war one. It's the best one. Yeah. And it was it's just phenomenal. One. And yeah. like, it, it you know, I was sitting there and it was like, uh, you know, I was on pins and needles just waiting uh, to hear what was coming next. And, um, you know, I just think his voice, his uh, his study and the meticulousness he puts into each one of those is really impressive. And, you know, just for you, Elliot, uh, you know, I know that uh, Jeff got to speak to uh, Dan and, and he made it into a podcast mm-hmm. and and I really enjoyed listening I, to that. I always say he liked that more than he liked this one. I I, I will say that. <laughs> I've yes. said it before. Like that was podcast fantasy camp for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Like that was like what am I what am I doing here? That was well. I thought he paid you a really good compliment because you had done a, something together here in Toronto. And, yeah, at his book launch, and and so that if if he was going to give a little information about himself. He wanted you to be the person that asked the question. We've become friends. He's a, he's a special guy. Yes. He's a special guy. As are you continued success. Uh, you got some Ferraris in the driveway. Uh, that must be fun to coach, uh, continued success and best of luck in the playoffs. Thanks for having me on guys. I really appreciate it. That's Jay Woodcroft, head coach of the Edmonton Oilers. Hope you enjoyed the interview as much as Elliot and I did sitting down with him and he gave us a lot of his time last Friday afternoon. We thank him for it. Taking Us Out is an artist from Brooklyn who's been on a tear the last two years, releasing three really strong albums. Yo OG's approach to music is grounded, emotional, and introspective. From his Burgundy record, here's Yo OG featuring Buddy, not Bud, Amari Mikkel with Polishing Truth Remix on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Yeah, I said lost in the middle, now I'm down on my chips. Divorcing the riddles out of town where my lips, yeah. Folded in slits, all the notes that I skip. Coldness and grips when the blubber couldn't fit, yeah. Tinker with abyss, token a bit, now my frontal in the ditz, yeah. Keeping to myself, but before in the mix, my storage eclipsed, so I portion within. Partition and damage, metamorphosis in, and the morse strength for the corners that I've been My pen let it carry me to crevices within It's journeys I'm on that I try to contend Content where I am till I peek under lid A lot of clutter covering the truth I'm amidst Surrounded, gathering the clues I admit I'm astounded at how I couldn't have it The jewels and the pebbles, my movement disheveled Searching for my base so I'm lowering the treble Polishing these truths like some old metals Yeah, yeah yeah, polishing these truths like some old metals, yeah. Searching the bass on, lowering the treble.